From rescuing souls all across America to rescuing children of sex trafficking in Thailand, you're about to meet someone from Columbus, Georgia, who has an amazing story to tell. Stay tuned. There is the word, there is the way. And brothers and sisters who find strength in their belief, we meet Faces of Faith with Phil Scoggins. Thanks once again for joining us. I'm going to be introducing a guest who's come to us all the way from North Carolina, Kannapolis, North Carolina. I'm not sure exactly where Kannapolis is, but you're about to to meet Joe Phillips, who's from right here in Columbus, Georgia. Joe, thanks for being my podcast guest today. That's my honor, Phil. Thank you for inviting me. Now, where's Kannapolis? Kannapolis is uh, outside of Charlotte, about 30 miles. It's okay. uh, the home of Dale Earnhardt. In fact, we live off of uh, not too far from Dale Earnhardt Boulevard, big okay. statue of Dale Earnhardt right there in the middle of town. Um, it's Concord and Kannapolis are separated by the interstate, much like Columbus and Phoenix City, separated by the Chattahoochee River. Well, let's bring you back home. You got your start right here in the Fountain City. And uh, for folks who aren't privileged, privileged to know Joe Phillips, we want to give them a nice flavor of your background and, and your growing up years here in Columbus. Why don't you start from, uh, you know, back in the early days sure. and walk us through your early years? Happy to do that. I, uh, I had kind of an interesting beginning, and I don't want to take you all the way back to the beginning. That's in the ancient times. But uh, I was born to an unwed mother. Um, she had some severe mental illnesses and abused me, and I was adopted by a first cousin when I was three years of age. And life was pretty great from 3 to 15, and then my adopted dad uh, and mother divorced. And so I went to four high schools in four states in four years. Mm -hmm. And what brought me to Columbus, Georgia, was my dad got a job on um, on uh, the main drag there, Manchester Expressway, mm -hmm. at, a, at a restaurant called Sambo's. I don't know if you remember the Sambo's yes. chain. Uh -huh. My dad was a training manager at Sambo's, and it was halfway through my junior year. I'd bounced around with some other families in that very chaotic time. And um, when I came to Columbus in 1980 in November, drove down 4th Avenue, asked how to get to Jordan High School. And they <laughs> promptly let me know it was Jordan Vocational High School. Drove I to had my to learn house. that when I came into, into town. It's an it, important lesson. I started spelling it in my prompter, J-E-R-D-A-N. <laughs> they let you know it in the, yeah, you ain't from around here, boy. <laughs> And I drove to the little mill house we were, we were going to live in, and I walked up to the school. And uh, I'd been a basketball player at all four uh, schools, or all three schools previously, and I walked to uh, the high school, walked in, found the gym. The basketball practice was in full swing, and the coach said, Coach Zimmerman, he said, can I help you? I said, I just moved to town. You're the first person I've met, and I want to try out for the team. He said, son, we've already had one game. We, I've already picked my team. I'm sorry, and it just was par for the course of a very miserable existence for me. I just kind of hung my chin down, and I was walking out, and he said, hey, come here. I was in my street clothes. He said, go down there, that practice goal, and shoot 10 free throws for me. And I went down in my street clothes and shot 10, made 10. Whoa. And uh, he said, Serious I found, you, basketball I found you a jersey, son. <laughs> I found a jersey for you. I guess they had a problem with their free throws. but uh, And I played a couple years here and loved every minute of it, but it was a – it was a high school math teacher at Jordan High School that changed my life. Buddy literally. Reader. Buddy Reader. Mm -hmm. um, Isn't it amazing the impact that one teacher, as I look back on my career, I, I, there's one specific teacher that 
that changed things for the rest of your life. Forever. What happened with Buddy? Well, it, I went to his 730 math class, and I'd, I was a fairly good student. Um, in fact, I played a year of basketball at Columbus State. It was Columbus College back then, and mm-hmm. it was really not my jump shot, but my grades. They needed that for whatever reason. Coach Green asked me to, to – gave me a scholarship. That's another story, but – but I wasn't good at math. I'd been in several different school systems, and you you got to kind of be consistent. So it's ironic that a math teacher changed my life. But I went to his 730 math class, and he was a peculiar guy. I mean, kind of had a flat top, uh, his, you know. And he, he wasn't the most stylish guy, although his wife is extremely stylish. And um, he would say odd things. He would say, jump out that second-story window. You think you're going to fly? You go to Panama City, car hit a tree, tree going to move. And I'm like, could you just let me flunk math instead of math and this hybrid Southern philosophy? What are you doing? <laughs> but there was something intriguing about the guy. And um, and I was having a, percu- a particularly bad day. And now back in the old times, and young folks in here won't remember this, but we had smoking sections for students. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That'll take you back. And uh, <clears throat> I was having a really rough time, and I, I sat down by Buddy Reader in lunch. He was sitting in the breezeway. Mm-hmm. And I said, Mr. Reader, uh, I checked with the office. You sit out here every day. You're not on lunch duty. You don't hardly eat anything. You just look at us, and you're starting to kind of creep me out. I, I mean, to, I wasn't really that disrespectful of mm-hmm. a guy, but it, I, that's how I entered this conversation. Mm-hmm. What are you doing out here every day? And Mr. Reader, uh, he's, he answered me an answer that put this microphone in front of my face all these decades later. He said, I've been waiting on you. And when he said that, I, I, my, ear, my, my eyes filled with tears. And uh, I said, I hate my life. Just hate it. I, you know, I got uh, no clothes. I don't have a vehicle. I don't have any way to go to college. I don't have any hope, you know. And there's no future for me. And my dad is living with this lady. He's not my mom. And got these kids. I, I just hated everything about my life except basketball. And, uh, but he listened. He listened, and he invited me to his farm to work. Things are looking up. He said, come, come, you don't live far from me. I know where you live. Just come come to the house Saturday. So, man, things are looking up. So I said, okay. And I walked to his house on Saturday, and he took me to Opelika, Roxana, outside of Opelika. Mm-hmm. He worked me like a Hebrew slave for a turkey bologna sandwich, an RC cola, faded banana. And no a $10 bill. No moon pie. <laughs> Gave me a $10 bill. And so we did. I did that for a few weeks, and I took that $10, and I snuck into a nightclub on Macon Road called Smuggler's Inn. I was 18 years old. And it's now a Longhorn Steakhouse, much better use of the space. But uh, I'd, I'd sneak in, and uh, I did that. About three or four weeks into this, Mr. Reeder said, Joe, Joe, why don't you go to church with me Sunday? Come on back up here tomorrow. He dropped me off. He said, why don't you go to church with me? I said, Mr. Reader, I'm not very religious, but I appreciate it. It was very nice of you to make that offer. And then he put into the equation something that's not fair for men. He put food into the equation. He said, if you'll come back up here, 
Patricia will make you some fried chicken, some butter beans, homemade cornbread, banana pudding. So good, you'll slap somebody. I said, what kind of religion are you, Mister? I can be Nazarene for pudding. I can be Jehovah's Witness for uh, chicken. I don't be whatever you need. You know, I, I, it wasn't fair. So I did that for a few weeks, and he he was a Southern Baptist guy. He said the Lord told him to start going to this church on the hill, and he did it. Out of obedience, he just did it. It wasn't particularly his flavor, but it, he did it out of obedience. And so uh, I'd go work on Saturday, go to the Smuggler's Inn on Saturday night, walk back to his house, and go to Evangel Temple. And it was a strange experience for me. They had all these people up there behind the podium, and, and they were wearing the same dresses, men and women, women, and they were kind of waving at me when I walked in with their eyes closed. I didn't know none of them. I thought, man, y'all friendly. I'm waving back. You know, mm -hmm. it was weird to me, but I'm getting chicken that day, so I don't care. It can be <laughs> as weird as it wants to be. So I did that for a few weeks, and there was an unmistakable, invisible presence in that room, and I couldn't really put my finger on it. You know, I just couldn't understand there's something about it so after a few weeks of that the farm the nightclub the church the farm the nightclub and the church i'd like to say i came to faith in a uh, miraculously transformative way at the end of a special service but it was on the dance floor at smuggler's inn and i was dancing with the married lady i don't know why that sticks in my mind and cool and the gang and rick james playing over the loudspeaker <clears throat> And I heard a voice, louder than a voice, inside my heart. I just heard it, just heard it plainly. It said, Joe, I love you. I got something better for you than this. On the dance floor. And I stopped, and I, I just started weeping. And you couldn't hear anything, but I could see the guys from Fort Benning that were on the floor, and they were, they were pointing to me, and they were saying, I could read their lips, he's drunk. I wasn't drunk. I was too broke to be drunk. I mean, back in those days, I had to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and lick other people's fingers. I mean, I was broke <laughs> down. You know, I couldn't pay attention. I didn't have enough money for to be drunk. I, I hadn't had anything to drink, but I heard a voice that changed my life. And that night, I walked out of that dark nightclub. I walked straight into the light. I've been walking into the light ever since. So that's the that's the early story. Well, you. Uh that church became a home for you to start your ministry in, right? It did. I uh, So my life transformed. I became born again, didn't even know what that meant, mm -hmm. and um, still didn't have any hope for college, didn't have any you know, vehicle or didn't, didn't have any. So I was working at the Martinique Hotel. I don't know if you remember that yeah. old hotel down <clears throat> on 4th Avenue, mm -hmm. and I was doing whatever they needed that summer. I'd change out mattresses, work in the flower beds, do whatever. I remember very vividly that some of my uh, classmates came by. I was pulling weeds, and and they said, Hey, Joe, we're going to go to uh, Panama City. Why don't you jump in? We're having a little impromptu senior trip. I said, No, I'm too valuable around here. They can't afford to lose me. But I, I wouldn't have been able to I wouldn't have been, been able to buy a sandwich. I mm -hmm. mean, I didn't have anything. And that same voice uh, spoke to me and said, uh, walk across the street. And so I, it was my break time. I got up, August, sun, hot in Columbus, Georgia, mm -hmm. put on my shirt and walked across the street. And when I put my foot up on the curb, it's almost like that, that story in the book of Acts where the Spirit said, uh, you know, uh, attach yourself to the chariot. And when he did it, he knew exactly what to do. So I put my foot on the curb. I knew what to do. I walked into CB&T. I walked up to the teller. 
And she said, can I help you? I said, I'd like some money. And I think she thought I was robbing the bank because she flinched, you know. Reached for the button. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she said, excuse me, I'd, I'd like some money. I'd like to get a loan for college. I didn't know anything about the world, how the world worked. Mm -hmm. She said, take a seat. I took a seat. And a six-foot-five, distinguished African-American gentleman named Robert Anderson walked out. Oh, wow. And he said, uh, son, can I help you? I said, I'd like some money for college. He said, well, we'll come in my office. Let's talk about it. He said, do you, do you have a, uh, an account with us? I said, no, sir. Do you have a savings account? No, sir. Do you, do you have any uh, uh, stocks? I said, no. Do you have any dividends? No. He said, do you have, uh, he was asking me several things, and finally, I, I said, collateral. I said, I'm not sure I even know what that means, so I probably don't have that. <laughs> he said, what do you have? I wish I was spiritual enough in that moment to say, I have Jesus. But I said, Mr. Anderson, I have good grades, and I have a desire to go to college. And he, he leans back in his chair, and he starts tapping on the desk, and he says, let me just tell you the way banking works, son. We do not give unsecure loan. When he said that, his countenance changed. I'll never forget it. His, his countenance changed. And he leaned up, and he squinted his eyes, and he looked at me. He said, there's something about you that I like. He said, uh, would $500 help you? I said, that's exactly what I came in here for. So that day I left with $500. It was the last day of late registration. I ran down and registered for Columbus College. The next day was the first day of class, and I was a college student. You know, wow. the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the, the desires, desires of your heart. heart. Yep. So on the first day of class, somebody, I still don't know who it was, said, hey, Phillips, Coach Green wants to see you in the gym, and I sprinted across the gym. And Herbert Green? Herbert Green. Basketball coach. And uh, I said, Coach Green, I was out of breath. Coach Green, I'm Joe Phillips. He said, sit down, son. I know who you are. I've seen you play. You got a pretty good jump shot. I said, thank you. He said, but you got good grades. We need some help in that department. And I cannot give you stipend or cannot give you anything on campus, but I can pay for your uh, tuition and books if you're interested. I said, let me pray about you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a college basketball player for Columbus College. And uh, it was amazing. But er, during that whole first year, Phil, of uh, my college experience, I'm shooting jumpers in practice, and something's happening to me. I'm seeing a variety of faces in my mind, Hispanic, black kids, white kids. I'm seeing these, these audiences, and uh, I'm, I'm seeing myself speaking to them. Really? Now I know I'm being called into the ministry. Okay. I didn't know anything about anything. And, uh, and so finally, I, I, after that first year, I went to Coach Green, a tremendous guy. Yeah. And I said, Coach, I, I have to follow the Lord, and I have to go to an unaccredited Bible college <laughs> in Florida. Uh, and I played basketball for them for three years, no scholarship, staying in the sun all day, your first game Saturday to, to just get enough money to pay for your tennis shoes. But I followed the Lord and uh, did that for three years. And then eventually, after three years of ministry in Fort Lauderdale, he called me back to Columbus to be the youth pastor at the church that uh, changed my life. Sitting here in the studio, and you can't see her, is my oldest daughter, India. Uh, she went on what was called a MAPS trip, uh, a missions trip for usually a week or so, 10 days, to Paraguay. And when she heard that you were going to be my podcast guest today, and she would have been a senior in high school then maybe, um, but that trip changed her life. Uh, tell me about your uh, ev evolution in ministry, starting from being a youth pastor. Yeah, well, so I left uh, Southeastern College and was a youth pastor at a 
very large church in South Florida for three years, and I, I felt the Lord was calling me into military chaplaincy. I really felt, uh, and there were some supernatural markers I won't mm-hmm. take the time to talk about. And so I packed the truck, uh, got accepted into a seminary in Missouri, and was going to stop in Columbus for my wife's 10-year high school uh, reunion. Cecilia. Cecilia. And, uh, and so we stopped here, and Charles Heath was the pastor, and he said, uh, and before I came up, I was in prayer early one morning, and I just felt this phrase roadblock kind of in my system, roadblock, and I didn't know what that meant. Charles Heath, a sweet, kind, gentle man, he, uh, he said, Joe, I really believe you should be our youth pastor. And um, it, it confused me because of the whole military chaplaincy thing, but I prayed about it, I had a piece about it, mm-hmm. and so... I, I stayed here for five years and really ministered to a lot of military people out of Fort Benning. Um, in fact, we took a trip. I think it was uh, yeah, it was before I went with India. We took a trip to Bolivia and ministered to 168 uh, cadets at their naval. It's a landlocked country, but they have a strong naval presence because of the drug trade on the rivers. And we ministered to 168 of their Annapolis, Maryland cadets, so to speak, and 41 of them gave their hearts to the Lord. So I did a lot of military ministry here, which mm-hmm. now makes sense, but it didn't at the time. Really loved being here for those five years and the relationships I had with folks like India. In fact, it was on that very trip that you mentioned, there was a young 15-year-old boy that we stayed at a state park, if you remember that, India. And it was a kind of a late night, and we're standing on a rock in the middle of a stream in Asuncion, Paraguay. And we're talking to this, this young man, uh, Nick. He had just seen many of his family members die. His father and his grandmother died on the same day in different parts of Columbus. Uh, his dad was only 47. And I said to this 15-year-old boy, my wife, Nick, thinks that you're going to be uh, used by God in the funeral industry Some, because nobody we've ever met has more experience than you. And to the, today he's a funeral home owner in Franklin. He's on my board. Uh, he's got a phenomenal ministry in that. So, yeah, these kind of trips were life-changing for a lot of people, including me. As you um, looked into the future through your eyes, what did you see yourself doing? And then how, how many other times did you hear the voice of the Lord direct you in ways that have caught you off guard? Well, I love youth ministry. In fact... Uh, the most organic thing I do is it put me in a room with 40 kids. It's like a mechanic walking into a, a strange garage. He understands the smells and mm-hmm. gets the idea where the tools are. Yeah. I thought I'd do that, you know, forever. And I, and I did youth camps, evangelism, over 100 youth camps in my 20s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s. So I never really thought much except I always wanted to do evangelism. In fact, it was after my stint here as youth pastor at Evangel Temple, I tried to be an evangelist, and I did it for 14 months, two weeks, four days, five hours, 15 minutes, and 20 <laughs> seconds. Or I lost track of the seconds, but I <laughs> totally crashed and burned. I mean, it is a very difficult thing to be an evangelist. It's in the Bible, but it's not in our culture. It's, you, can't, you don't get paid to do it the same way. It is definitely a by-faith venture. I always loved evangelism. Even even from the beginning. In fact, as a kid, I went to Charles Heath. It was in Bible college, and I said, I want to be an evangelist. And sweet Charles Heath said, that's, that's a tough road, Joe. So youth ministry and evangelism was always in my heart. 
and most of my, and I pastored a church in in uh, West Virginia for three years. I was a state youth director for Georgia in the denomination, and I had a territory from Chickamauga all the way down to Kingsland. It's a vast territory, mm-hmm. and all of my <clears throat> ministry, I would say in my heart, this is great, but if I could, you know, this is wonderful, but there was always a, a however in mm-hmm. my life. For the last 14 years, there's been no however. There's been no buts. I love doing what I do, uh, and that's just tell people the, the good news of Jesus in a variety of ways. You do it from the pulpit, but um, nobody who has ever heard you uh, preach has ever not heard you crack a joke or, or tell a, a couple of funny stories as a part of your uh, evangelistic style. But... Uh, Tell me the role that comedy has played in your ministry, and certainly tie it into Lee McBride, who's a, another local sure. uh, gentleman that you team up with regularly that tells the gospel in a funny way. Well, I think comedy, it's a, it's a fascinating science, and I like to listen to podcasts about the craft of comedy. It's a high, it's a, it's a high rope, tight wire deal. I mean, if you're preaching and you say a funny joke, as you mentioned, Gravy, wonderful. You're not there to be a comedian. You're there in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. But if somebody hands you the mic and says, "Here comes the, here comes a circus boy for 45 minutes," <laughs> and you're not funny, it's a lonely place on the earth. Mm-hmm. But comedy really began probably for Lee and I both as a as a mechanism of survival in youth ministry. You got to keep these kids' attention, mm-hmm. and so humor was just a, a tool. We, we want the Indias of the world to listen to what we have to say. So if we can grab them and hook them with a joke or something, then, then that's what we're going to do. For us, or for me, it became a stream of income because as an evangelist, there's no salary, you know, there's no retirement. It is truly a by-faith venture. So if we can add to that in a way that is consistent with our calling, you know, Paul was a tent maker, mm-hmm. um, but if we can somehow point people to the Lord with our comedy, then that's just an extra tool in the toolbox. But it, w- it has evolved into something where I realize that um, disconnected people from the Lord are not going to come to the revival services. They're not coming to the revivals necessarily. That's mm-hmm. kind of for the body, strengthen the church and. Mm-hmm. But they'll come for a movie or a comedy show. And so if you can, if you can uh, lower defenses of people with 35 minutes of, of comedy and then what we call, Lee and I call a turn, you know, mm-hmm. we, just, we just turn it into the power of the gospel. And, and that's what we try to do with the acting outreaches on stage, with the film, with the, with the comedy. Get your attention. Put, put some beautiful art in front of people. A craft a comedy, and then tell them the truth. You f- you feel the atmosphere change in the room. People are laughing or they're enjoying the the theater, whatever it is. But when but when you make that, it's not a bait and switch. But when you just naturally and supernaturally just make that shift into the wonderful story of Jesus, the the atmosphere changes because that's where the anointing comes. That's where the power of God. The power of God is in that story. Mm-hmm. That's that's the kind of the evolution of comedy for us. How did the team concept between you two come about? Lee McBride is probably my best friend next to Jesus and my wife. Lee and I were roommates in college, 
I was at his first comedy show ever. It was at the lodge behind Evangel Temple in Columbus. Mm -hmm. I was at his first sermon, which mm -hmm. was at the Valley Rescue. There were 11 people. Uh, the four of them were intoxicated, and one of them had wet their pants. But that was his first sermon at the Valley Rescue <laughs> wow. Mission, and he did phenomenal. We've just always been great friends. And, um, and so uh, we've done several different kinds of uh, tours together. We recently did the Clergy Collar Comedy COVID Comfort Tour. That's a mouthful. <laughs> In these unprecedented times. <laughs> The new normal. We people need to laugh, and so we yeah. we did that For in a sure. few places. And uh, we are now currently working on uh, kicking off a tour uh, June the twenty sixth in Huntsville, Alabama, at uh, the Rock Family Worship Dream Theater, beautiful state of the art theater. And we're calling that Tuxedo and Camo Comedy Tour. And the promo will be me in a tuxedo and him in camo, <laughs> sort of like the odd couple. We have totally different styles, but uh, and to be totally honest. He's a lot funnier than I am, but we are we are funny together and have a lot of fun together. Well, anybody that hasn't seen you, I can assure you, it's a as as we would call it, it's a hoot. <laughs> you, you need to take advantage of it if if you get the the chance, and y and y'all do have uh, events around here, so we'll uh, put the word out. Um, Ebenezer Scrooge is a part of your um, repertoire. Talk to me about uh, how that evolved and and, sure. and how that plays into your persona. Well, uh, uh, it's an interesting story. It's going to sound a little mystical, and I'm not trying to be mystical, but I had an open Sunday in November of 2010, and I'm just sitting in church, just like I did this morning at uh, Evangel Temple, two services, enjoyed Pastor Paul immensely. And I, I just w was a worshiper that day, and I had my red calendar. I still have a paper calendar like in the olden Good days. Good for you. Uh, Those come in handy. You know, got all the technology, but I just love the paper. I, I and and I'm, I'm in the middle of a service, and I heard that voice. I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit on a dance floor at Smuggler's Inn, but now I know what his voice sounds mm -hmm. like. And, um, and it, it was, uh, don't travel next December, be in a play. And I hadn't been in a play since I was in Oklahoma at Jordan Vocational High School with Linda Twiggs as my director. I played the character Slim, and a lot has changed since then. <laughs> uh, but I wrote that. I wrote that in the margin. That's thirteen months out. I, I had my next year's calendar mm -hmm. in my in my little uh, case, and I, I wrote, "Don't travel." Being a play, I didn't even know what a play. I didn't even know what kind of play. I just wrote that down, and then I see this community theater. Community theater. Uh, is taking auditions for Christmas Carol. And those words kind of came back in my mind, and I didn't book anything in that December out of, out of obedience, so I showed up for the audition kind of on a whim. In fact, I had a Starbucks cup, and uh, the people doing the auditions, some of them knew me, and they said, Joe, what are you doing here? And I turned that Starbucks cup around, and I had written with a Sharpie, pick me for a big part. And, uh, <laughs> and so I read, they said, read, and I, I didn't know that I had a, British accent, but I just I just opened up my Bible to the Book of Acts and I I read something and with a British accent and uh, that was it and I I thought well Lord you know if you want me to be in it I'll be in it and they called me back and said you got the lead role so it was two hundred and fifty lines and cues and it was a ton of work and lots and lots of rehearsals and after about two weeks of rehearsal I asked the director of the community theater I said uh would you allow me at the end of this production to take about four minutes and share the, the good news of Jesus? Would you let me do that? He said, I got to think about that. 
Christian guy. And the next rehearsal, he said, I've thought about it, and I'm going to let you do it. And so after uh, spinning around for two and a half hours, costume changes, wearing a wig, made me look like one of the golden girls, <laughs> and uh, uh, eyeliner. You know, the first time I put eyeliner on, I thought I'd have to have anesthesia. I don't know how, I don't know how anybody does that. And, uh, going through all those hysteronics, I, I shared the gospel, and people responded. And so we did. We did five years of sold-out theater. You know, a thousand people would come, pay twenty bucks or ten bucks for a ticket. But I thought, how can I leverage this now? More than just four or five shows a year, I've learned and worked. So I, I started doing a monologue. I remember I went to Hickory, North Carolina, and just stood up and just in my costume and just told the story in a monologue. I mean, it sounds boring now. That evolved into a pretty high production value event where I would take uh, Sheila Green from Columbus was our homecoming queen. First ever African-American homecoming queen at Jordan Vocational High School. We were in the same class. Okay. I called her up and I said, man, I need somebody funny that can sing. And she was phenomenal. And we would go, I think we've done over a hundred shows around the country. Um, and we call it the Ebenezer Experience. Can and, you give uh, us a flavor of what that's like? Uh, yeah. Well, we, you know, it, it would open... Uh, the, the pastor would introduce me and then it would open and uh, it would just show me in costume behind a counting desk and uh, and I would and then we would put pictures we, we would ask the audience to use their imagination because we had a very bare bones cast and mm -hmm. we put pictures and so it was monologue acting and props and it was it was just a really neat hybrid but i'd say what's the racket is the town on fire and and you see pictures of these little street urchins and and scrooge would be gruff and mean and pray master noisemaker you know and and all that and uh, fred would come in and and uh you have met it why Oh, because you fell in love. I must congratulate you, nephew. You've marked upon the one thing even more ridiculous than Christmas, a wife bar. And just, and then, you know, you see the transformation happen. Sheila would come out in this beautiful red costume and she would stop the show with her singing, give the audience sort of a uh, an in-house intermission to uh -huh. breathe and to laugh and to cut up. And uh, and so we'd go through that. And then uh, in the Tiny Tim, we would always have each venue provide two children. Tiny Tim would come out, and, and, he, and he would say, God bless us. I'd squeeze his knee, and he was supposed to say, God bless us, everyone. Right. If he didn't do it, I would say it, so it wasn't that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. And I'd put him down, and I'd say, and that's what happened to me one night in London, England. And I'd take a bow, and they would clap, sometimes stand and clap, and I would say that. That was very kind of you. You may be seated. Would y'all mind if I just use my southern voice now? And <laughs> <laughs> Segway right into the gospel. Yeah. And then, and then I would just, I would revisit the show uh, in my normal voice. Mm -hmm. And I would talk about how, how Ebenezer transformed. And I would say, I also was visited by a ghost many years ago on a dance floor in Columbus, Georgia. His name was the Holy Ghost, and he began to tell me about my past and my present and what my future was going to be without him and what my future could be with him. And then I talk about how Bosworth got money for the United Way campaign, and Tiny Tim uh, got 
got healed, you know, and got cared for, and Cratchit got a meal, and O'Reilly got a goose, and Dan Barry got debt relief, and and then I go through the gospel, and I, and I always say, now if I can't if I can't sell you on this for your own sake, so that your name would be registered in heaven and you could walk on streets paved with gold and that your life could be transformed and you could put your head on the pillow and have a clean conscience and that you would be forgiven. If I can't sell you on that, can I just try this one more thing? How about for all the people in your life whose lives will become elevated if you change your life? And then I share a little bit about all the people that I've been able to touch in my minuscule ministry whose lives are different because my life is different. Mm. And uh, so so I think we've seen about a, about 1,240 people come to know the Lord. We know it because they fill out these cards and mm-hmm. they tear the corner of it. And, uh, and that little tagline before I leave, I say, no, a million years from today, we bump into each other and we say, hey, how did you get here? Well, I heard a Billy Graham rerun on, on TV and prayed at the end of it. Well, what about you? I, I prayed with Pastor Paul at the end of a service. Well, what, what about you? I think I prayed with Scrooge. All right, good night. <laughs> a, a unique ministry tool, for sure, and very effective. And ironically, the director at Community Theater, director, I just hired on my team, and we have now... We have now made a hybrid of the big 100-member Christmas Carol production, my little minister, four-member Ebenezer experience, and we did a thing called Christmas Carol experience, and he's going to work with me full-time, helping me in major projects, not the least of which putting, putting theater on stages in the U.S. and overseas. We're going to Vienna, mm-hmm. Austria, the Lord willing, in 2022, and putting stuff on stages there. And... Uh, uh, he is super talented. We did it in Huntsville, Alabama in December, and during a pandemic, 51 people gave their heart to the Lord wow. at the end of this thing. Well, we'll just pray for um, the Lord's favor as you move forward in Thank that uh, endeavor. But So you're a, a preacher, you're an evangelist, you're a comedian, um, but you're also the producer of a documentary. Well, actually, it's a feature. It's a... Uh, it's not really a documentary. We we made a film of, about sex trafficking. I'm not a sex trafficking expert mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. Sort of the law of unintended consequences is people ask me a lot about trafficking. But in 2015, I was in Thailand, and I saw something that really, really touched me deeply. A friend of mine started a home over there in the northern uh, area of Thailand, Chiang Rai, which is about 20 miles from where those boys were in the cave. You, you probably did lots of news stories on those mm-hmm. kids that were trapped in the cave, the soccer mm-hmm. team, yeah. 20 miles from there. What happens in that part of the world is people fly up from Bangkok, and they, they uh, see these pregnant women or they see children, and they offer the mother 200 U.S. dollars for the child that she is pregnant with. We'll come back in 10 or 12 years. We'll give you another $200, which is a fortune for the Aka Indians of that part of the world. And they, they promise that they're going to take the kid to Bangkok, put them in the hotel industry, washing sheets, and, and, and then the kid can send money back to mom or grandma. They're not evil parents or grandparents. They're just kind of destitute. But they don't, they don't put them in the hotel industry, washing sheets, and they make their entire investment back the first night, and then they just use these kids up. 
like disposable cameras and throw them away. Mm. But my friends started a home there, and uh, there are like, I don't know how many graduates. None of them came to this home knowing the Lord. None of them left without following the Lord. My friend pays for all the college. If they want to go to college anywhere in Thailand, if they want to be a doctor, want to be a lawyer, he pays for, for this. He and his wife started this home in the 80s. And it really, really uh, touched me. And I felt like of all the great things this friend of mine has done, phenomenal things in America, this was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. And not any, no one really knew about it, not like I was watching it. And I asked if you ever thought about making a movie, just laughed and said no, but I couldn't get away from that idea of telling that story okay. on, a, on a screen. So you've been to the home? Yeah, I've been to the home. Hope House? Well, I, I, it's a or fictitious that, name. Okay. It's a different name. But okay. what we've done is we've partnered with a home there in Shanghai, another home that I, I worked with as sort of a regional thing. It's in the same city. Mm-hmm. It's called the Changrai Children's Home. Mm-hmm. And we've been able to send about $17,000 there, even during a pandemic, just with some limited showings of this film. And, and uh, so uh, 2015, the idea came. 2016, I, I'm trying to work out a script. 2017, working on the script, trying to figure out what to do. 2018, raising money through a series of miracles. We go film this thing in January of 2019 back in northern Thailand. Just before the pandemic. Just before the pandemic. Half of it in tank, Thailand and then half of it in the States. And uh, we were premiering that thing on March 19th, 2020. I had rented the Gym Theater in Kannapolis, a historic, literally historic uh, theater. Seats 750 people. I had the tuxedo. That's why I'm doing the tuxedo and camo comedy tour. I don't want it to go to waste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and, then, and then the pandemic hit and changed everything and we had to pivot and try to figure out what to do with it what impact from what you have seen in the release of the of the feature film what do you hope the the full impact will be but what have you seen just in the short period of time it's been out people have been so incredibly moved by it we showed it uh, we did about nine states and we had licensing agreements and we we uh, showed it in eight states nine or ten cities I showed it in Macon, Georgia in July. This lady came up to me, and I've learned something. I put my comedian hat on. Okay. Not everybody celebrates corona season in the same way. When I go up north, they're scanning my head when I walk in the door. I told a lady the other day, I said, hit it again. I think I got a coupon that'll pop up. Go ahead, hit, hit one more time. <laughs> I mean, they're militant about it. I mean, they come out with uh, just sticks, you know, separation. Down down south, it's, hey, y'all clump up down here at the front, and Joe's going to pray for us. <laughs> Uh, and this woman walked up, and she she was getting all in my space. And I got a lot of faith, but also have some sense. It's July, you know. I don't want to give this to my ninety two year old mother in law. And she's all in, and I'm backing up, backing up, backing up till I get to the stage. I can't back up any further. And she she said, "How are you going to release this? Everybody's got to see this. This movie is incredible. Everybody needs to see this." And I said, "Man, pray for me. I don't know. We're trying to figure it out." And she took this little coin purse and she stuck it in my chest, and she said, "Take this." I was going to Sam's after this service and prepare for what's coming, you know, like a prepper, I Mm -hmm. guess. And she said, take this, go, go rescue more kids. Uh, And she said, don't lose it. And I said, I promise not to lose it. Thank you. And I took it and I, I opened it in the truck and it was six $100 bills and more than the money. The message from that lady is what moved me. I keep that 
I keep that little coin purse on my desk from this stranger in Georgia. What she was saying was, I was going to use this to save my life, but I want you to go save their lives. A woman in Boston last week saw it, heard, heard about it, sent a $1,000 and said, send this to Chiang Rai, which we immediately did. A lady in Indianapolis saw it, said, send, she sent $300, send this to Chiang Rai. So that's been, that's been the experience of people are deeply moved. One pastor said, I think, the, and as a substantial church, I think the Lord used this film to open a door for us today. Another, another pastor said, we have a foster kid, and we watched this movie, and we immediately called the lawyer, we're going to adopt this child. So I'm not a sex trafficking expert. I'm a storyteller. McBride is the best storyteller I've ever heard. We tell stories, and so I just told this story. But mm-hmm. the story, like Jesus told stories, the story is what moves people, and they are moved by it. And uh, How could people see the film? Any, anybody anywhere can see this film free of charge, and here's why. When we made this film, things began to happen positively, like I mentioned. Also, some weird things. I got blood clots in September. I'm not in the greatest shape, but I run, you know, several times a week, lift weights. I'm not in – and I got these weird blood clots out of nowhere. And then four of us got COVID. My daughter struggles even to this day, 200 days afterwards, as the long haulers. I mean, she teaches as a perfectly healthy 29 pre-COVID with oxygen around her nose. Uh, and then on January 2nd, I nearly lost my 59-year-old wife from a heart attack. In fact, it was on a Saturday. An off-duty nurse was there checking on my mother-in-law, and she saved my wife's life. So I realized I've kicked a spiritual hornet's nest with this. Mm-hmm. Pushback came, mm-hmm. and the only way I know to react, I guess it may be the ball player in me, but when you get poked in the eye, you just push back. And so we're pushing back against darkness by saying anybody anywhere in the world can watch this on any device by logging on to Aren't You Somebody, A-R-E-N-T, no, no punctuation, A-R-E-N-T-Y-O-U, somebody.com. Immediately you'll see the button. And you can just hit that button. It's a 59-minute film. There's about a six-minute gospel presentation at the end. People can watch it on movie theaters. They can watch it on iPhones, iPads, anywhere they want to. And, uh, and I encourage them to do that. Explain how you came up with the title, Aren't You Somebody? Well, it, it, my friend, the opening scene, and, and I'll just tell everybody, it's not a family. It's not an R-rated or an X-rated or anything like that. It deals with a very adult theme and that is selling children to, to adults that's a terribly adult theme and there's not a ton of that but it's it's seen at the beginning where a, there's a knock at the door and a Thai man is trying to sell a child to an American and uh, it's midnight this really did happen to my friend he didn't know in 1986 nobody really knew what sex trafficking was like we do now mm-hmm. and and he was disoriented jet lag what are you doing the guy says, she's a pretty girl, right? She's pretty as a picture. Went, yeah, she's lovely. Is she yours? Is she lost? No, yours, yours tonight. And he says, are you out of your mind? And so there's this conflict with the protagonist and the, this, this antagonist and this whole subject. And it's, and so that sets the, the scene for the movie. And the next morning, he's talking to the local pastor, and he said, how was your flight, Pastor? Well, it was trouble. It was flight was fine, but last night was very troubling, Pastor. To be honest with you, I'm so, oh trouble. What's the trouble? Well, a man he tells what happened, and uh, 
well, we, and he was sort of nonplussed about it. He said, yeah, we have that here in Thailand. And so my friends, well, somebody needs to stop this. And, uh, well, what are you going to do? It's the Westerners who bring the, well, uh, well, what's the government? Somebody needs to stop this. What's the government doing about it? You know, what's, well, what can we do? Well, what's society doing? Somebody needs to stop this. And it went back and forth like this. You pastor a substantial church. I mean, what's the church? Somebody needs to stop this. And the pastor looks at him and says, you're somebody. Aren't you somebody? And that question changed the destinies of hundreds and hundreds of, of girls. And, um, and so that question is a missional question. Well, you're somebody. Aren't you somebody? There's something in this community that's breaking the Lord's heart. There is a problem somewhere around here, and you have the solution to. You're somebody. Aren't you somebody? Go, go fix the problem. And that's how, the, that's how that home started. Wow. Powerful stuff. And you can find that by just Googling, aren't you somebody, and it'll take that's you right. to, the, to the movie. Yep. Joe, you have had the privilege of being exposed to a number of what I would call faces of faith, folks in the faith that have been your heroes. Tell me about the influences that have played a role in molding and making who you are in the ministry today. So many, so many. Um, Of course, Luther Reeder, just that quiet, unassuming man. I preached his funeral in Opelika. When I was at that graveside, I said in my prayer, Lord, I'll never say this again in the rest of my life in any grave with any integrity at all. But thank you, God, because of this man's love and concern for a broken down teenager that I'm going to go to heaven. He made an incredible impact. In fact, there's some form of his name or existence that's in every one of my special secret passwords. If you ever want to get into my account, find my $11 if you can figure that out. I'm 57 years old. He's still making an impact in my life every day. Mm. So he he was huge. And then uh, uh, my pastor who baptized me, Charles Heath, he, his love of reading, his uh, enormous capacity, intellectual capacity, his sweetness, but his strength. He had an underlying strength. He didn't want to cross him. He made a big impact. I mean, the first guy I ever worked for was a guy named Max Yeary. He had an intense passion for prayer and fasting on Fridays. And that intensity uh, affected me very deeply. There was a guy named Roger Brumbelow in Atlanta who was a Vietnam vet and was tough. He was a man's man. I mean, you'd follow this guy into a foxhole. He loved God, loved Jesus, but he would go. He'd take on hell with a squirt gun. He, he, he made an impact in a different way for me. Um, and then the guy named Tom Whitten. Tom was the founding pastor of the church that I'm at now. Um, I was youth pastor there for five years. It was called First Assembly. Now it's called Multiply Church, same great church. It's changed the name. In fact, a former intern of mine now is my pastor. Uh, he pastors about 2,000 people, several campuses. But about three weeks ago, I held uh, the handle of Tom Whitten's casket, had the profound honor of being a pallbearer for, for his funeral. It was a private graveside, then a huge memorial uh, later on. And they opened up for they opened up uh, at that graveside for anybody that wanted to share a memory. And I was the first guy that walked to the casket. I said, you can't crack the door open for a preacher like that. <laughs> 
And uh, I said, since Pastor Tom Whitten, founding pastor of this church, died, I've been thinking about St. Stephen's Cathedral a lot in Budapest, Hungary. There's this beautiful Catholic cathedral, and it's, it's just incredibly ornate. And you can go to the top, and you can see the city of Buda and Pest. They call it Budapest, and the river separates the two cities. And it's fantastic, but there's this little macabre box on the second floor. It's just about the size of a bread box. And you, you go up to it, and, and uh, you put a quarter in it, and it lights up. And it's the literal, supposed literal shriveled hand of St. Stephen's from the 1600s. It's kind of a weird, like a circus attraction. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about that since Pastor Tom, this face of faith in my life, since he died. I thought... If there was anything of Tom Whitten you'd put in a box and light up, it, it wouldn't be the work of his hand, although it was incredible. He started, a mov- he started a church in a movie theater in the 1950s when it was a sin for Christians to go to movie theaters. He was ahead of his time. He started this incredible church. has 187 beds, three floors, assisted living facility that's connected to this church with 1,000 kids in daycare, 1,000 kids in a Christian school. Just a visionary. But I don't think he'd put his hand in the box or his feet or his incredible mind. It would be his heart. Mm-hmm. Tom Whitten prayed for people. He started 63 years ago with nothing but knocking on doors 40 hours a week. They'd open the door. He'd say, I'm Tom Whitten, just moved to town. Is there anything I can pray with you about? And then at his end, he, he couldn't do much, but he sat on the porch of his house People would walk by, and he would pray for them. Mm. He served the Alpha and Omega in an Alpha and Omega way by beginning with prayer and ending with prayer, and he wasn't getting paid. There was no feather in his cap. He just did it because of his heart, and that has made a tremendous impression on me. I knew he would pray for me, and and there was no reason to pray except that's in his heart. Mm. That That made a huge impact and I was deeply deeply honored to to be his pallbearer as you think back over your ministry what uh, you can't um, I mean you've got multitudes that that you could share but there are times I can look in my life where I know the Lord intervened the Lord performed a miracle the Lord came on the scene uh, in a mighty way and made a difference in what was going on right then yeah. What would what would be a moment or two that that where that's happened with you? So so many, but I'll give you the freshest ones that came from this this film. Um, so it was in November of 2018, um, and my missionary, a guy named Terry Waisner, who used to be the children's pastor at Evangel Temple way back in the 60s and 70s, he just sent me an email and said, "Joe, I've I purchased my ticket. I'm going to Thailand, and I'm going to uh, set up all all of the filming that you need, all the cast stuff that you you require." And my heart kind of just stopped for a minute because this missionary has just purchased a ticket. I didn't have enough money on that day to get myself to Thailand, let alone a film crew. And I was in a little country town in the middle of Georgia, and I remember going into this pre-service prayer. Nobody heard me pray. There's about four or five people in there. And I said, God, this missionary just came off his own dime to, to go to Thailand, and, and I cannot leave him hanging. you got to work a miracle for me. So I preached that morning, 
and uh, I had shared before about my movie. I'd been there before. I, in fact, that little church, I laid the script on the stage and said, I don't know what's going to happen, but if y'all would pray with me during this altar service, come by and put your hand on that script. So they asked me to give an update, and I gave a little brief update. I didn't tell them anything about the, I just said, we're going to go make a movie in Thailand. And an old man walked up to me, and he said, uh, Preacher, God done told me I was supposed to help you with that movie, but he ain't giving me a figure. But once he gives me a figure, it'll be substantial. I there weren't 50 people in that room. I immediately went to the pastor and said, Pastor, that old man. In fact, there was only about 30 people that Sunday night. I said, that old man just said he wanted to help with the movie. I wanted you to know about it and that that encouraged me that he was interested. He mm -hmm. said, if he said it, take it to the bank. That was on Sunday night. On Monday, that guy got my email address. He sent me an email. Preacher, God give me a figure. It don't make any sense to me, but uh, if it ain't right, let me know. But he told me to give you $28,231.68. That was on Monday at 11 o'clock. On Wednesday, that check was in my bank account in North Carolina. On Thursday, the, the tickets were purchased for Thailand. That was a miracle. Wow. That was an absolute miracle. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew about that but the Lord. And, and so one more thing, and this, this is your hallmark moment. I don't know if it's suitable for podcasts. If it's not, just edit it out. But uh, before that happened, early on in the origin of this thing, I couldn't get it out of my mind that I was supposed to make a movie. I'm just a youth pastor. I, I don't know anything about making movies. So I'd interviewed my friend in, in a southern town. I got a video crew. I gave the video to my administrative assistant. She transcribed 14 pages, single space of the interview. I had that. That's all I had and some Post-its. And I'm driving to a cabin, and I'm praying Lord, I don't have time to do this if this is not your will. Get this out of my heart. I'm tired of thinking about it. It won't pay any dividends spiritually or otherwise for a long, long time. And as I'm praying that prayer on a curvy mountain road, now here's your hallmark moment. At my age, usually I kind of get an email from my bladder to my brain that gives me about two minutes of head start. Hey, mm -hmm. you, need, you need me to be looking for something mm -hmm. next two minutes. I had no email, no text message, nothing. I'm praying that prayer, and I have this emergency moment. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh, we got problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I pull over to this wide swath of gravel, and it's misting rain, and I jump out of my truck with one thing on my mind, and as I'm kind of trotting up into the, into the woods there, it's a pile of trash about 10 or 12 feet to my right. It's about three and a half feet tall. As I'm running up, that same voice from the nightclub, and I know I sound mystical. He's probably talking to me all the time, but these are the times that really, that same voice says, I've got a message for you in that trash pile. Now, that's a weird thing to hear Whoa. at a weird time to hear it. <laughs> so I come out of the woods. I walk over to that trash pile. The rain's still just misting, and on the top of the trash pile, a hymnal is opened to a hymn I'd never heard of and I can't find, but I know what I saw. The hymn was titled, Endure to the End. From that moment to this moment, I never doubted whether I was supposed to do that or not. not never one time. Mm. That was a supernatural moment in my life where God spoke to me in an open hymnal on a misty rain uh, trash pile. We could sit here for another hour and listen to your stories, Joe, but um, 
I just want you to know personally, thank you for your ministry to my family. Again, my eyes cut over to my daughter, India, and what you did for her and her life uh, back in the early 90s. But just watching you over the years uh, minister at Evangel Temple and, and in other uh, arenas. But the Lord uh, is using you uh, clearly through this movie. This is another avenue for you besides the Ebenezer Scrooge. But uh, you know, thank you for, for having a heart after God and, and listening to his voice. Well, thank you. And I have a deep appreciation and a deep love for you and your family and appreciate what you do in this part of the world and, and everything you've done for our family. Thank you, Phil. And, and any listener that's uh, listening to this, if I can tag on. Absolutely. I have another script that's already done. It's in the can. It's about a minister who was doing phenomenal things in his early 20s, got sabotaged, ambushed. Life hit a very difficult patch, and he spends the next 30 of his years running from his call in various ways with grace chasing him in each scene and uh, that's already ready and in the can and i just want god to use that in a powerful way when we start filming that absolutely keep that on your prayer list those that are out there listening Uh, again thank you for taking a time on we're actually recording this on a sunday afternoon and you've you've been in some services already today and probably have some more this evening but thanks for stopping by wrbl studios and sharing your heart on Faces of Faith. Thank you, sir. Deeply honored. And before we go, as always, we want to remind you that whatever you're going through, always remember, keep the faith. Thanks for joining us.